Today I want to invite you to step into God's living word and hear some things that it has to say about the birth of Jesus. Things that have the potential to change the settings on your internal spiritual operating system. Things that have the potential to draw you into a deeper experience of two emotions that are referenced frequently in the Christmas narratives, peace and joy. As most of you know, when it comes to preaching at Christmas time, this is not my first rodeo. I've had the privilege of declaring the implications of the incarnation of Messiah Jesus over 300 times during my tenure here at ACAC. And that experience has taught me two things. Preaching about Jesus' incarnation never, never gets old. But it does get a bit more challenging if you're always doing it with the same crowd. Because everybody knows your material and everybody knows how the story ends. Now, fortunately, for both pastors and congregations, familiar biblical stories can still surprise us with new discoveries. And there's a reason for that. The Word of God is alive. When God says that, He means it. The Word of God pursues us as we move through life and all of the inevitable changes that are a part of life. So the Word of God often waits patiently for just the right moment. Then it shouts some new insight into our soul that it previously only whispered because we previously weren't prepared to receive it. God's Word rewards repeat visitors with new unexpected gifts, providing providing we're open to receive them. Now, the text we're going to consider today has the potential to offer us new gifts, and I seriously doubt we've exhausted its potential. It often takes a back seat to some of the more familiar passages penned by Matthew and Luke, and even the prophetic passages penned by Isaiah. You'll rarely find it on a Christmas card or find it on social media in a Christmas meme, but it couldn't be more Christmassy. And yes, Virginia, that is a legitimate word. Our text is Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. God, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. I want to speak to you today in two parts about a glimpse of God. Let's pray together. Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to declare your truth prophetically and accurately. By your Spirit, enable us to understand it and apply it. We pray that for your glory and the benefit of your people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice to our hearts today, may the Lord be with you. One of my first duties as a young pastor flying solo was to conduct the memorial service for a little one-year-old girl who had died tragically after a series of desperate medical emergency procedures. Her single mom was a member of the congregation. 
Just moments before the service was to start there in the funeral home, as the time for viewing was drawing to a close, an elderly woman walked in. Her face was just etched with anger and pain. She made a silent beeline for that tiny casket, looking at no one, speaking to no one. After a few moments at the casket, she wheeled abruptly and addressed the startled room with these words. What kind of God would do this to a little child? Now, needless to say, nobody offered an answer. There wasn't time. She was gone in a flash. Besides, I suspect most of us recognize she wasn't really asking a question. She wasn't seeking an answer. She was lodging a protest. And I subsequently learned she had recently lost her husband after a prolonged battle with cancer. I never saw that woman again, but I felt safe in assuming that Like many in this broken world, her thoughts of God had been shaped by her devastating trauma rather than God's divine truth. Although 42 years have passed, I've never forgotten the two-sided sadness I experienced in that moment. Sadness for her as she lashed out at the only heart in the universe capable of healing her heartache. And sadness for God, who once again found himself the object of unfair character assassination. And nobody has experienced more character assassination than God. That day proved to be a formative day in my life and ministry, Because as I processed what I had just witnessed, I determined I wanted to spend the rest of my life helping people see my Creator, my Savior, and my best friend as He really is. Not as they assume Him to be, not as they want Him to be, and not as they imagine Him to be. The ensuing days and years taught me something, something I suspect Jesus knew all too well. Helping people see God as he really is, is no easy task for two reasons. First of all, some don't want to see God accurately because they intuitively sense he isn't safe where he isn't wanted. They sense that God, if they were to know him, would pose a serious threat to their stubborn pride and to their illusions of self-sufficiency. So they either reject the idea of his existence altogether, ignore him, or make him over in their own image. The second and more prevalent reason helping people see God is a challenge owes to the fact that many who want to see God accurately struggle to do so. And there are a host of reasons for that. For some, it's simple ignorance of the Word of God, the written testimony of Scripture. For others, it's the false testimony of counterfeit religious faiths. For some, it's the fear that a perfect God could never accept them. For others, 
It's the failure of God's people to represent him well. For some, in fact, I'd say for many, it's our tendency to define God in light of our own personal pains and betrayals and disappointments and abuses and abandonments. This past week, the thought occurred to me that we often sculpt an image of God made from the clay of our ugliest and most disappointing moments in life. And everyone struggles to see God accurately in the face of an unrelenting demonic campaign of misinformation about God, one that makes our worst political mudslinging look like mere child's play. Now, given all those barriers, how can we possibly know the truth about God? And that's where the incarnation of Jesus comes in. It would be no exaggeration to say it was an absolute game changer. Because in the incarnation, God gave us a prolonged glimpse of himself, over three decades of glimpse. And in doing so, he didn't leave us with nagging uncertainty. He didn't abandon us to endless speculation. God spoke to us in Jesus. When I return in a moment, I'd like to suggest why that was such an incredible gift and why what he said has the potential to be liberating in our lives. Jesus is the only gift we really need. But if you've asked for my sizes, you can go ahead and (laughs) be just as pagan as you want to be. God gave us a remarkable gift when he gave us a glimpse of himself. And here's why I say that. First of all, the incarnation tells us that God's heart is that of a determined lover. He's eager to have us know him. For that reason, in a world where people divide over almost anything, God refused to allow anything to permanently divide humanity from his heart. In a world where broken and fearful and insecure people divide over the smallest things, God became small so that he could bridge that divide between his heart and ours. God wants you to know him. And for that reason, I'd like to suggest the incarnation is the ultimate antidote for two things, our sense of insignificance and our sense of superiority. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, which is it, insignificance or superiority? Those two things don't sound like they would go together, but they do. They're really just opposite sides of the same broken, sinful coin. Let me explain. Sin that separates us from our Creator makes us insecure. It's inevitable. And insecure people are always enslaved by comparisons. They're always comparing themselves to somebody else because they need to feel, they need to reassure themselves that they are somehow better than somebody else. Because if they can't convince themselves of that, they run the risk of drowning in despair. 
In contrast, secure people are free to love others as their equals. The illusions of superiority that prove irresistible to some have little to no appeal for them. And the only enduring foundation for feeling significant and secure is the recognition that an awesome, perfect, all-knowing, loving God wants you to know Him. In light of that reality, I'd like to suggest something that at first hearing probably sounds overly simplistic, even preposterous. In a day when we hear so much talk about addressing injustice, I'd like to suggest that Jesus' incarnation offers the only enduring and effective cure for injustice in our world. Because it's the only enduring effective cure for the insecurity and sense of superiority that fuels things like bigotry, racism, greed, nationalism, exploitation. If we don't address the insecurity that is produced by sin, unbelief, and estrangement from God, we'll never, never find enduring solutions for injustice in our culture. We'll spend our lives focusing on symptoms rather than addressing causes. We'll find ourselves mowing off the top of the injustice dandelions only to find out they grow back in even greater number. Worse, if we combat injustice without the security of soul that only God provides, we may discover that our efforts were less about genuine compassion and concern for others and more about addressing our own insecurities and the voids in our own souls. And then we end up exploiting others for our own sake, all in the name of attacking exploitation. We act unjustly in the name of doing justice. And that isn't love. It's not love at all. It may be well-intended, but it's an uninformed insecurity masquerading as love. See, God doesn't call us to love others and assist others and meet the needs of others so that we can somehow feel good about ourselves. He calls us into a relationship with himself that shifts our focus off of ourselves and frees us to love others. The fact that God gave us a glimpse of himself says something more. It testifies to the fact that God is full of grace. He doesn't shun us in our mess. When our addiction to doing things our own way had disillusioned us and dehumanized us and disappointed us, God refused to walk out on us. He refused to write us off like some failed experiment. In the language of social media and a currently popular television series, when we were messy, God didn't unfriend us. Instead, He went to incredible lengths to literally make us His Friends. Now, for those who find that hard to believe, and that would be every one of us, 
The gospel writer Matthew underscored that reality in a very creative fashion. He opened his gospel account with Jesus' genealogy. In Jesus' day, kings and priests had to prove their genealogy. And Jesus came to be both our king and our high priest, so he had to prove his. But Jesus' genealogy did more than confirm his credentials. It revealed God's heart. Because unlike most genealogies that were prejudiced, patriarchal, and very selective, They would conveniently omit anybody who was an embarrassment to the family. Jesus' genealogy went out of its way to include those who were customarily excluded. Non-Jewish ancestors, including a Canaanite. A number of women in a patriarchal culture. And more than one notorious sinner when many a righteous person was omitted. Now, Matthew didn't do that on his own. The Spirit inspired him to write. It was God's way of saying, everyone will be invited into my kingdom, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. In light of the glimpse of God Jesus gave us, you could say God became little to show us there are no little people in his eyes. There are no insignificant people in the sight of God. No unimportant people. No write-off people. No extra people. There are no little people in God's sight because every human being bears his image. The final thing I want to highlight today is that the glimpse of God we received in Jesus informs us that God is humble. It sounds rather odd, doesn't it? But it makes him even more appealing. See, most people wouldn't put God and humility in the same sentence because we have a hard time imagining that absolute power and authentic humility could be found in the same heart. But they were found in Jesus. Remember, our text describes him as the heir of all things. The earth is his. He holds the title deed. It describes him as the one through whom God made the world. We're not here by accident. It describes him as the exact representation of God's nature. So when Jesus voluntarily accepted the limitations of taking on human flesh, the limitations of a servant status, and finally death on a cross for our sakes, Paul said that was a display of authentic humility. Jesus didn't hold on to his privilege, but humbled himself. Now, death always humbles you and me. We don't have any choice. It's coming for us. But Jesus had a choice, and he chose death. He was willing to let humanity do its worst so that he could do God's best, because he knew our worst would not destroy him, but open the door for new life for all who believe. The angry woman in my opening story asked the question, what kind of God would do this to a little child? I'd like to suggest the incarnation invites us to ask a different question. What kind of God would come to us as a little child? 
and permit his own execution because of love. What kind of God would care that deeply? What kind of God would sacrifice that completely? And the answer is clear. The God who gave us a glimpse of himself in Jesus. The determined lover who wants you to know him. The gracious creator who didn't unfriend us when we were a hot mess. The big God who became little to show us there are no little people in his universe. The humble God who gladly embraced the death we seek to avoid so that we could find him. He has given us a sustained glimpse of himself. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We often hear people raise this objection to faith. How can we believe in a God no one has seen? That statement is based on a fallacy. God has been seen. He spent 33 years with us. Thousands of people saw him with their own eyes. You could have been among them if you had gotten here earlier. (laughs) But you have a habit of being late for everything, don't you? The issue isn't that God hasn't been seen. He has been seen. When the disciples wrote later, they said things like that, which our eyes have seen, which our hands have handled, which we experience first person. So God has been seen. And what he's shown us about himself is so attracting. So the pertinent question is, have you come to him? Have you accepted his gracious invitation? He said, all who come to me in faith will receive a restoration of life that turns on the lights, that changes the internal operating system, that makes everything clear. C.S. Lewis, to paraphrase him, said, though I haven't seen God with my eyes, because of my relationship with God, I'm able to see everything else. That's what God wants to do for you. We want to give you an opportunity to take that step today. So I'd like to invite each of you to erect a place of focus and prayer in your hearts. If you're already a Jesus follower, pray for those in the room who haven't yet crossed the threshold. And if you're among those who has never crossed the threshold, God is eagerly awaiting you on that other side. He's calling for you by name. He wants you to know him. God is love, and love wants to bless. Let him bless you. In your own words, in the quiet of your heart, where God knows your every thought, simply say something along these lines. You put it in your own words. First of all, confess that you've lived your life without God, and you have sinned against him, as we all have sinned against him. Tell him you'd like to change your situation. But only he can do that. Invite him to be your Savior, your Messiah. Invite him to grant you that rebirth of your soul that will open your understanding and change how you see everything. 
Confess him as your Lord. Affirm your belief in his resurrection. And commit yourself to following him and confessing him before others the remainder of your life. Father, we're thankful you didn't leave us in the dark. You didn't leave us to pursue false images of who you are, only to be bitterly disappointed when it's too late. You want to be known. You want to be known by imperfect people. You went to great lengths to make us your friends. And you promised us you want to be our friend. I pray for any who received that news with gladness and responded today. Seal to their hearts the decision that they have made. Affirm them in their new faith. Help them to find a place where they can be encouraged and taught and help them to be contagious carriers of the good news. And Lord, for those of us who've been in the kingdom for a while, if we've gotten over the joy of our salvation, forgive us and restore that joy. Help us to be contagious, as contagious now as we were in the first few hours that we enjoyed in your kingdom. Don't ever let us get over Jesus. Thank you, God, for giving us a glimpse of yourself. What we have seen is awesome, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.